Welcome back to Civispacem. In this episode, we discuss realism, a theoretical framework in international relations. We talk about roots of realism, its main assumptions and drawbacks. Vava also shares his experience of taking classes with the leading scholar in modern realist thought, John Mearsheimer. We also focus the part of the episode on differentiating between offensive and defensive realism. So, if you like this episode, please share it with friends and subscribe to our channels. And, as always, enjoy! Dear listeners, and Civis Passion with you again this week. And today's on our agenda is realism as a theoretical school of thought in international relations. And it's just interesting to discuss it with you, Vava, because you are sort of like privileged to take courses from uh, one of the most, one of the not just founders, but maybe one of the biggest thinkers in realism currently. It's like Mersheimer. Um, Yeah, whenever you, wherever you study international relations, Mersheimer always comes up. Um, so it's just interesting to maybe ask you questions about your experience uh, of studying realism with him, but just in general of uh, your understanding of this concept and maybe how um, your studies with him um, kind of help you to maybe use it in the future for your research and just in general, how do you feel about this school of thought? Um I guess uh, should we maybe just uh, introduce it a little bit? I guess for most people you may know already. I guess it's one of uh, the earliest school of thoughts that basically tells you that power politics and international relations is all about um, big power competition. It's like uh, perpetual conflict and uh, something like anarchy in the world system and it will never come to balance because it's all about power and it's all about countries struggling uh, to gain more power. So it kind of like views the world as very anarchical, very chaotic and always kind of prone to conflict. And his one of the most famous books of Mersheim, I guess, called Tragedy of Great Power Politics, which basically... The, the title is self-evident in terms of it's just about um, how realism always prevails and countries always kind of like conflict with each other because it's a tragedy of great power politics. There is no escape from the reality, so to speak. Um, yeah, and uh, this realist school of thought is very old, as you said. It's you can go as far back as Machiavelli to uh, to talk about it, but um, they're very some distinctive. Uh, distinctive strains of realist thoughts and Mirschheimer's is uh, the offensive version of realism. We have defensive realism, offensive realism, and while they're all based on the assumption that states is what matters in the world where there is no higher authority than the state, states will always seek to, uh, well, they will seek their survival and they will undertake different steps to Uh, to assure the survival. You have defensive realism, which says states will want to amass as much power, uh, as much power as is needed to survive, while uh, Mirschheimer, he is the father of the uh, offensive realism school of thought, which he outlined in his book, uh, 
Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And there he claims that um, you can never be certain of um, the intentions of different states. And the therefore, they might be malicious towards you. So the only... The best way to survive is basically amass as much power as you can, and whenever you have an opportunity to seize more power, you go and use it. When another state is vulnerable, you go ahead and eliminate them before they become a threat to you. So his idea is that states will be never satisfied with the, the amount of power they have, and they will always seek to uh, expand. The only uh, the only exception is a state will become become a status quo power, as he calls it, only if they achieve global hegemony, which he himself uh, admits is not likely any time in the near future. Yeah, I guess I can add, I guess like Crimea would be a very nice example of offensive realism in terms of, uh, of course, but it's also it's also the, like the matter of interpretation, I feel, because even like in recent strikes uh, in Syria, I guess they use the terminology that it was defensive strikes, which is like, you know, defensive precision strike sounds kind of a little bit awkward for specialists, because how can you like precisely... Uh, commit a strike if it's defensive but all right i mean the whole idea like conceptual idea i guess it's it's really clear explain it really well um just like countries take steps in order to like maybe offend but uh for the longer perspective they do it for their own of course security and um, self-defense so to speak in the world yeah i guess um it's really yeah it's as you as you mentioned it's really old school of thought i guess uh, it gained a special popularity uh in like with the return of great power politics with the rise of china and also the, the, like rise of russia i mean i don't know people still whether they still say it but i mean in terms of uh, offensive russian strategy in post soviet space i would say um I guess it's interesting from my Russian experience, I would say for Russian policy, like foreign policy makers, it's like the prime school of thought. They may be, they mainly operate via realism and they actually really like Mersheimer and they uh, invite him to lectures. And I mean, in China as well, he's also pretty popular in China. You can see all kind of book tours and uh, just people inviting him to prestigious uh, Chinese universities and he talking to like some Chinese ministers or something like this privately it's kind of like natural which is kind of interesting because on the one hand he kind of presents uh, this american established uh, academic community because he's still very very influential very famous in america um by no means he's like a mainstream scholar so to speak but on the one on the one hand he's really like utilized uh, by russia and some russian officials because basically what they say like they kind of like invoke this uh, theory to explain their like kind of offensive behavior uh, and kind of protect it, not protect, but maybe defend and explain why they behave like this, why they needed Crimea, because they are not really sure what, the, what, what they're going to do with Crimea. If like uh, Ukraine becomes the part of NATO, probably Crimea becomes the NATO base. And, you know, this cannot be like possible or feasible for Russian security perspective, because this basically means that uh, in the former, like, Russian naval base, there will be, like, a NATO naval base. Um, yeah, it's a very nice point that you made, is that uh, offensive realism assumes that everybody uh, takes the steps uh, only in pure defensive uh, measures. So, as he talks in his book, uh, China is the rising power right now, and they want the U.S. out of Asia because they think that the U.S. is a threat to their uh, existence. Um, and also, he also mentioned in class once, uh, imagine that 
we, he was mentioning the US, that we had all Chinese bases all around the US, we would also be scared that they're going to attack. They're, they're scared that we're going to attack them because we have so much military presence around them. That's why they're belligerent towards us. So even though uh, countries take offensive steps, uh, they're often, you know, they have their survival in mind uh, with preemptive strikes and preventive war, and, you know, military bases all around the world. It's, um, even though it's called offensive realism, it's still mostly motivated by defense. Yeah, and I mean, America is the prime example of how they use... Uh, I mean, they really use realism in their foreign policy thinking since long time ago, since like this idea of uh, of Monroe Doctrine not letting like foreigners into North American continent and even just American continent in general, not letting like foreign influence the same with Cuba and uh, Maduro as well. Like just examples, we, like on the one hand, uh, they kind of promote um this idea of let's you know make uh, like ukraine part of nato like democracy so on and so forth but i mean they the same don't want allow kind of same things happening in even in cuba during cold war or right now i mean maduro is kind of like special case but whatever like they still don't kind of like want anything uh, happening against america in this continent because it just kind of like not belongs to america but it should at least uh, militarily there shouldn't be any kind of like foreign presence because it threatens American soil or something like this. Um, yes, exactly. So um, also what he says in his book is that states, uh, ideally, they want to achieve regional hegemony. Uh, he says regional hegemony is the be their best bet because world hegemony is super hard to achieve. So the best bet is to achieve hegemony in your region. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when you achieve uh, hegemony in your region, nobody can contend with you. You are safe. The only threat to you, then, is if another state assumes hegemony in a different region. Let's say Germany conquers all of Europe. Now, they're equal in power to you. And even though they're not in your region, they can now have power projection away from your region, which can threaten you. This is basically what happened in the Cold War, when uh, the USSR was a hegemon in Eastern Europe, and they had potential to become a hegemon in Europe. So this motivated U.S. engagement in Europe to prevent mm -hmm. uh, USSR from achieving uh, complete power and domination over Europe. If they did, they would be a huge threat to the U.S. Uh, yeah. national interests. The same thing happened in World War One with Germany and World War Two with Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. Germany had a chance of becoming a hegemon. The U.S. intervened to um, to stop yeah, it. But also, it's interesting, I guess, that uh, throughout history, we I mean, we did experience a lot of realism. Uh, but uh, I mean, let's say if we like talk uh, like pre uh, pre uh, massive like weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, that was like a period of a lot of wars. But after that, we only experience and live maybe like through like all this like uh, multipolar world with com uh, divided between like USSR and uh, um, NATO, and then we live like basically through this American hegemony very short period of time, and then it's like big transformation. And I guess what experts tell a lot like to leave like with this realistic perspective it means to understand that kind of conflict is inevitable and it's sort of like we live in a very dangerous world right now because we not only have like i guess one or two big powers but we also have like a lot of like regional powers like turkey for example not even like russia russia is of course a big regional power power but it also kind of has ambitious um international kind of um, international ambitions to 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 project its power but then there is like a lot of like small powers, like 
as, as, as I mentioned before, Turkey. But I mean, not only you can say like Germany is definitely European power in a certain extent, or France, for this matter. Um, yeah, um, that's absolutely true. And it's good that you mentioned um, different types of international system here. We had unipolarity after the end of the Cold War. We had bipolarity during the Cold War. And uh, right now, as Merchheimer argues, we have multipolarity. That means we have more than two great powers uh, in the system. And in his book, he argues that such systems are the most unstable. Uh, he argues using basically statistics. If you have only two great power uh, great powers in the world, uh, there's only a threat of war between those two. And if you have three great powers in the world, you have... Uh, the possibility of war between power A and B, power A and C, power B and C. Uh, so you have way more occasions for a great war to emerge. And it's hard to imagine that any power would not intervene in a great power war. So he argues that if we have multipolar world, it, it's the most prone to war. And he argues that we are in a multipolar world right and now. And also, I guess the important point is alliance forming, because when you have this kind of multipolar world, multipolar world uh, kind of countries tend to form alliances and of course we see this this idea i mean they try to form like right now alliance against china uh, like via nato mm, just via, via nato as a kind of medium to convene countries and like come like come up with a strategy against uh, china which i mean we'll see whether it's feasible or not but you can still see and then you see like russia kind of also like take some steps towards sort of military alliance with China because now they kind of build uh, the anti-missile prevention system, like early warning system for China or something like this. At least they, Putin said they kind of cooperate on this issue, which is, I mean, I guess, big deal for America because, of course, uh, just providing such a like uh, vulnerable technology to China is a big step for Russia, I guess. Uh, they also did not really, uh, they were not friends, of course, because during Cold War, as we know, they almost like uh, went into war with each other. So it's interesting as um, as we definitely live through this multipolar world, how we experience this um, very conflictual moment, I would say. And and actually how Mishima, I guess, the, the whole thing about him, that no one, I guess he he issued this book, uh, about about like his uh, this was one of the most famous books, uh, tra uh, tragedy of great power politics in nineties or something like this. So it was really relevant in a certain sense back then, but then it became super relevant in let's say when during Crimean crisis and just generally with the rise of China it became more and more um, just more and more relevant because back then in nineties people thought oh yeah it's like the end of history you know the U S probably won everything it could so it had it had so much power so. Who could like uh, who could really uh, take a stance against the U.S. Like no one, people thought all experts. But now, as we see, it's completely false. At least, at least in this point, like everyone sees that he saw and he was like really good strategist in terms of thinking for long-term perspective and not uh, short-term perspective. And in long-term perspective, as he mentioned in his book, books throughout his, I guess, academic career, that this idea that, like, you know, this great power competition and, like, power politics prevails and so on and so forth. So, I mean, basically, like, uh, I mean, I have, like, different uh, thinking about, like, Mersheimer and realism because for me, as uh, I went through, like, Russian foreign policy school, I saw how it, like, they use this 
uh, in a very bad sense in terms of, uh, for me it was like a little bit weird because one of like American thinkers basically has this ideas that can be used by Russian multi, like actually multi foreign policy makers to um, kind of advance their own ideas. But these ideas, I couldn't really agree with ideas, like not ideas, but actions of Russian government. And so I couldn't thus agree with the ideas behind those actions, something like this, that was my thinking and still kind of is, but maybe a little bit more complicated. Um, uh, but you definitely could, you sh we should like, I guess, grant him a credit for just thinking f through like ages and just predicting stuff that people just didn't believe in him, in his ideas. And now, boom, you see that they work and you see how the world works according, like by his kind of, kind of books, you can say, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so maybe just a couple of questions to you. Uh, how how do you evaluate like his lectures and courses? Uh, how is like Mersheimer as a teacher and just generally maybe like you can give some insights what you do during classes and uh, what's his approach to teaching and how, how does he like I guess explain his theory himself? Um, it's interesting uh, because he doesn't try to convince students that his theory is the uh, only correct one. At the beginning of the class, he said that, yes, I am an offensive realist. I believe that there will always be conflict and great powers is what matters. But I don't care if you disagree with me. If you finish this course and you become a liberal, you, that's fine. If you become a constructivist, that's also fine. There's no correct answer. So uh, that's a very nice scholarly approach that he uh, allows people to disagree with him. And he uh, acknowledges that you know he is not a god and he, may, he might be wrong. Um, but his teaching is definitely uh, more... Mm, he tries to uh, show the arguments of all the sides of the debate. Um, when he discusses history of U.S. foreign policy, uh, he gives argumentation of different sides, uh, arguing for different strategies like isolationism and um, offshore balancing. He tries to provide arguments uh, from all the sides, but then at the end he gives uh, insights which one he thinks is the correct one and why. But he always provides arguments from the other side, which is, I think, very good in academia. And he also has, I guess, very extensive um, historiography background, and just he definitely knows in depth history and history of foreign policy, uh, which gives him like a lot of credit in terms of when he argues. He he does know nuts and bolts, and he definitely uh, constructs his argument using, of course, assumptions of realism, but also like very good historical examples. So. Which, which you can find plenty of those, of course, in history, because, I mean, throughout history and just throughout politics, of course, uh, especially in countries like Russia or the US, uh, people like Kissinger, of course, they think um, just via realism in terms of how they see the world. I guess for them, it's way more realistic than for anyone else, just because the way they deal with uh, just just with the statehood and uh, the idea that they kind of control the state and control resources of the state gives them a lot of kind of power, I, I think, and a lot of puts them into this realistic perspective um, because they have to like rule and, you know, like Kissinger with his uh, uh, flights back and forth from like China to, to USSR and just like this idea of just kind of um, um, just ruling... Uh, Ruling the U.S. the U.S. as a one unit in international politics, I guess 
definitely gives you like realistic perspective because then you definitely feel what can I do? How can I increase my kind of security and decrease their security and so on and so forth? Yeah. Um, you know, actually, it's interesting about Mirschheimer. He uh, also admits when he has no answer to a question. Uh, for example, um, there are you know, scholars who disagree with him. Um, and he admits that some of the arguments that are made against him are pretty good arguments. For example, uh, the theory of democratic peace, which basically says that democracies do not go to war between each other. He says that that's a very good theory. It's super hard to disprove for him. He says, well, if you look at the data, that's true. We have uh, in history, there are very few examples of wars between democracies. And he says, well, I, I have no uh, reason. I have no arguments to disprove this theory. Uh, the only thing I can argue against in this theory is that uh, this theory doesn't explain why. It only says democracies don't go to war between each other, but it doesn't say why. We have only the data that shows, yeah, it's pretty rare that democracies fight each other. But the only flaw is that we have no explanation why. So we don't know if there's some causation or a correlation, and that's the weakness of the theory, and that's how we can argue against it. But he admits, yeah, it's hard for me to argue against this one, which is super interesting. Yeah, it also feels like realism, as, little, as, as we mentioned, it's really old school of thought. I mean, you can definitely trace back to like Peloponnesian Wars, and I guess some, there's like, I guess in Chicago, there are courses dedicated to just like Peloponnesian Wars and just reading those texts just to understand politics, uh, I guess, maybe the continuity of politics. Uh, but this this is old school, and of course, it kind of fails to explain some facts, very modern things, like for example, European Union. Because uh, when you think of like when you take realist perspective, it's like almost like just impossible to explain like something like European Union based on ideas, values, common identity, and basically like very constructivist thinking. Because like you definitely see people coming up together and just discussing stuff and trying to like basically trying to construct right now new identity for like oh, how how many 400 million people so to speak it's it's something like really not not realistic in terms of like not in any sense realistic it's it's way more and then of course so when you ask Mersheimer Mersheimer can say it's something it has to do with the German influence maybe with French influence a little bit it has to do with these big powers that and then yeah, of course, there there is this perspective, but it still kind of fails to understand, you know, why nations cooperate in this closed hmm. closed way right now. I think that you could make the argument uh, that the EU uh, can be explained by realism uh, when you look at uh, the speeches by some European leaders like Macron, who says uh, we have to be united to uh, stand up against China and the US and be independent. So maybe you can sell it as some sort of a balancing coalition against great powers. We we had the EU Commission president herself talking about great power politics and that EU needs to be united in the world where there's great powers. So maybe you could argue that um the EU uh the best way of survival for EU states is to cooperate with each other. Uh, it's a sort of a balancing strategy. But I, I agree with you, there are, there are some like flaws Germany in this theory that are hard to explain. Then you see Germany selling, it's like the first uh, exporter to like all European countries and stuff like this. So basically it's like Germany maximizing its own power but via different tools because it cannot really be offensive after World War II and there is no kind of like, <laughs> there is no path there anymore. Uh, it, yeah, which is soft power. Is so yeah, applying soft power, power instead of hard power. In realistic terms. 
Um, yeah, I guess just uh, for me, I mean, it's just all based on assumptions and I guess uh, assumptions are really good. You cannot really argue with assumptions because when you like just construct your paper or something like this, so any kind of research and take realistic assumptions, they do really work because then you see how it kind of comes, fits together like a puzzle. But then the thing is you can question assumptions and this, I guess, the problem with those all positivist schools of thought, because then, like, if you start questioning their assumptions, then you come to, like, so many problems uh, in their thinking, because then you start thinking how, like, why do people think, like, like um, why do people, like, really believe in realism? Like, why, like, foreign policy makers, like, believe in realism? Maybe if they were taught not to believe in realism, they would not really behave, like, realistically, or something like this. Um, yeah, it's like... Yeah. because they basically yeah, they, you just question how people <laughs> learn and how they behave and how they are social, how they socialize. And I mean, you just you just think about well, there's a really more complex world, uh, way more complex than you take like those assumptions and then. But which is like, it just I guess two, two different types of research because of course like realism is really good school of thought when you I guess do politics and you you can really come up with a good. Uh, decisions i mean in terms of even crimea even though um i could disagree with russian government but i still see the argument there and logic behind those actions because i mean uh, american behavior international relations could not really be that fluffy and nice to other people especially to russians it's, it was like really posh approach to russians after cold war even though it was a peaceful transition and kind of russians gave up like all power in europe to americans so to speak um and you see how just America did maximize its power to to its maximum. Um, it absolutely did. Um, but as you mentioned, um, one more point is that the world is super complex, and that's a that's an issue with all social sciences. It's very hard to make to come up with some general theory. There will always be some event or some phenomena that will disprove your theory. The world is so complex. You have so many individuals, states, uh, environments. It's hard to sum it up in one theory that will, that will explain the entire world to you. You have too many variables, which means that any theory that you come up with, I mean, even, even if it's in, the greatest in theory in the world, well, it will always like be flawed. Relativism, you have uh, quantum quantum mechanics, then you have like biology, which doesn't really fit into physics sometimes. It's it's kind of a big mess, and of course we do need to have different opinions and approaches. But I guess the, the good thing is uh, to discuss them. I mean, one critique for American actually, not school of thought in general, but your academy, uh, how it's like built. I mean, you could see definitely not so many constructivist thinkers in America, and there is like definitely this big leaning towards liberalism and realism. And the basically have a few professors that maybe have some post-constructivist constructivist research, but it's mainly like people like Mersheimer who who do research. And then the problem is they definitely, like like in Russia, they take some po they take posts after, also they combine sometimes, they, they work for different administrations, so they bring this uh, realistic thinking, real politic thinking, and then what creates sometimes problems because there are so many people with this realistic thinking so it just creates the problem of uh, this community of people who basically have very similar opinions and this may be what prevents change in the long run. And uh, you see a certain different thing in European Union where I guess people have way more diverse backgrounds and diverse opinions. So it kind of maybe facilitates progress. Um, and also Europe has been very strongly, uh, has very strong experience with 
offensive realism thinking, yeah. which basically caused two huge world wars, which caused millions of dead people. So um, yeah. maybe there's some collective experience that Europe shares, which yeah. uh, allows it for different thinking. There's also, I guess, the question of uh, nuclear weapons, but maybe we'll tackle this one next time. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a topic for an entire episode. All right, so... Thanks. Uh, thank, thank you for listening to us. Uh, uh, subscribe to our channels if you like. Um, connect to us on Twitter and stay safe. Um, have a nice week. Have a nice week.